when our fear is, for instance, inflation, and right now the United States fears, as a, as a group, fears inflation far more than they fear bank failure. So we're okay with seeing some bankers lose their shirts while the depositors are made whole to combat inflation. And that's what we're seeing right now. So what's the Fed's role in all of this? Why are they the ones that are causing bank failures? The only way to solve inflation is to suck that extra money out of the economy. And when they're sucking the money out of the economy, it comes from people that hold the most money. And that often is banks. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. I should replace exciting with interesting because we can use that as, hey, we're talking about bonds. That's interest. Yeah? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Eco-drivel is hard to talk to eight-year-olds about. I was explaining this morning how owning parts of companies work to my eight-year-old daughter. And it's, it's not really elementary school level stuff. It's hard to bring the concept of ownership much less. I mean, when, you, when your concept of ownership is, I hold the doll, therefore it is mine. That's how we all start. To, nope, this is not my doll and I must give it back when I'm done. That takes a long time. That second stage, is a, it's a long time coming. Um, one of the, the, well, the major area of my study and research is in behavioral. Behavioral finance is, it's amazing. It's like psychology, but you can measure it with money. What causes people to make the decisions they make and so on. So when we talk about finance and the economy, psychology is, you can't separate the two. You really can't. Money is an emotional issue. Um, there's a, survey that's been going on for a long time from the general social survey um, and they do annual surveys that for years and years they did um, asking them things like do you feel confident that life for our children's generation will be better than it has been for us and these numbers are often almost always the majority of people going back as far as the survey has been done the majority of people tend to believe that their kids are going to have it worse off than they do. Why? It's a good question. I don't know. And that number is trending higher, not lower. So let's go back and see how accurate it is. About 30 years ago, 1993, the survey was done and 68% of the parents at that point in this survey, and there's like 2,000 people, 2,000 to 2,500 people all over the United States that are surveyed on this. 68% of them said that they thought that their children's generation would have it worse than they do. That was 30 years ago. And if you look at the quality of life, um, you can look at inflation-adjusted pay and so on, But then, and, and that's definitely better now than it was then. You can look at the quality of life, the size of the houses or apartments, square footage has increased. 
There's a lot more amenities. There's no way that I can look at 30 years later and say this is worse than it was then. And yet 68%, that's a lot of, it's a major majority, felt that it was going to be worse in the future. Well, the most recent poll has come out for 2023, and they believe that 78%, 78% of people today believe that their kids' generation is going to be worse than ours. And only 21% believe that it's going to be better. They feel confident that it's going to be better for their kids than they are today. Um, what, is, what leads that? <sighs> it's, it's a good question, but without that worry... Without that fear, we wouldn't do the things necessary to make our kids' generation better. It's just the truism of every financial psychological decision. The thing that you're worried about, unless it's already grown to a level that it's destroying you, is the thing that you're dealing with already. If you're afraid of not being able to pay your bills, you're more likely to pay your bills than people that are not afraid of not being able to pay their bills. It just depends on where the fear is coming from. If you worry about things financially, you tend to take a better care of your finances until you worry so much that you just don't want to look at it. That's dangerous. So this is true in politics and it's true in finance. When our fear is, for instance, inflation, and right now the United States fears, as a, as a group, fears inflation far more than they fear bank failure. So we're okay with seeing some bankers lose their shirts while the depositors are made whole to combat inflation. And that's what we're seeing right now. So what's the Fed's role in all of this? Why are they the ones that are causing bank failures? The only way to solve inflation is to suck that extra money out of the economy. And when they're sucking the money out of the economy, it comes from people that hold the most money, and that often is banks. So banks that have been making improper decisions, not necessarily wrong decisions, but not the best decisions, can find out that suddenly they were wrong decisions. When if they didn't have the bank run, it wouldn't have been wrong. It would have just been a decision. It, it, when you look at it from that, the Federal Reserve's job when fighting inflation is to make things, make the money more expensive than the thing you want to buy. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing interest rates on loans going way up, except over the last two weeks, and this is a great example, two-year U.S. Treasuries on the 8th of March, we're at 5.05%. Why is that important? Two-year two U.S. Treasuries, I'm just throwing numbers out there with, number, with years attached. Because that's an area of sensitivity to the banks, big sensitivity. It's talking about the uh, car loans and so on. If, if you're choosing to give a car loan uh, at 6% or get a loan or give a loan to the government at 5%. And that's for sure going to pay you some money back. But you have to wait two years on it. You might decide to stick it in the government because it's risk-free for if you wait till maturity. You're only giving up a percent or so. So yeah, why don't you go do that? Well, when that happens, they're locking the money up at the bank in a place that none of the principal is coming back until full maturity. On your car loan, you're, get, you're paying back principal and interest. So the bank gets some principal back. That can help with runs on the bank because you got extra money coming back in. 
When it's locked up in a balloon note, all you're getting is the interest back. Okay. So in a three-day period, we went from a, about a 5% to 4.6% in the two-year loans. Why is that a big deal? Because that's a massive drop. We're now below the 4% mark. We're at 3.76. So we went from over just over 5 to 3.76 in a matter of two weeks. Well, what caused that? What, what, well, the Federal Reserve caused that. They introduced a they basically started buying up those loans from banks. And when they do that, when they buy them up, they're dumping money into the system. They're making it cheaper to get a loan. If you have three people that want to loan you money to buy a house, you can auction that and bring their interest rate down. Well, the other guy says he'll give me 4%. What are you willing to do? When the Federal Reserve is dumping money into the system, it's another lender. So interest rates will come down. You can auction them off and say, hey, so when, when they're buying up these loans, the interest rates fall. The federal government has lots of people they can sell their loans to. You give me a loan, you give me a loan, you both are fighting over giving me the loan, I can bring that rate down. When the Federal Reserve comes in to buy up those loans, the rate drops. So the government says, all right, I've got the best deal I can get right now at 3.76. The banks are saying, all right, I don't want to lock up for two years at, at that low rate, I can still get like a 6% on a car loan and I'll get some of my principal back. In the last hour, I said that generally the people that made really good decisions in the last catastrophe or leading up to the last catastrophe are the ones most in danger in the next one because they get hubris. We can do no wrong because we did so well. And they tend to get a lot of profits during a time period when their competitors are not getting profits because people trust them more. And that leads to a lot of easy money. And easy money tends to lead to lax ethics for some reason. If you get paid a lot of money for doing something that other people aren't getting paid a lot of money for, you, your attitude tends to change. This is a behavioral finance moment writ large. We have all seen it in celebrities and sports stars and, when, and lottery winners. They tend to treat money differently than people that have acquired the same amount of money over a lifetime of work. Well, why? Because it was easier. It came faster. And so our minds tend to think this is going to happen forever, where people that have acquired their wealth over decades or generations, recognize that it's an incremental process that you have to struggle hard to maintain your status quo and to get growth is even a harder struggle. Where the people that have just been handed massive checks feel like, oh, this is going to happen forever. It's just part of human behavior. It's true for all of us. When you have a bank like Credit Suisse or Wells Fargo, and I'm not in any way suggesting that Wells Fargo's in trouble. They've, they've had some good stress test results and their, their balance sheet looks good and so on. Uh, but they've had a lot of scandals, a lot of scandals because they were at the pinnacle last time around. And another example of this is Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns collapsed in the GFC, the global financial crisis. They disappeared. They're gone. But if you go back to the dot-com bubble and boom, and then the bust, Bear Stearns stood at the top of the world. They were the ones making good decisions and buying things that weren't unprofitable. They were only buying profitable things. Forget about these um, 
internet companies that haven't made any money yet. They were buying good stuff, and then other people weren't. So other people collapsed, and Bear Stearns had to step in and buy them up. Next collapse was Bear Stearns' turn. This is something you have to, in a business, no matter what the business is, you have to be actively involved in saying, am I still looking at this like I'm hungry? Like I need to stay ethical. <laughs> like my reputation matters. I can't, I can't rest on my laurels on this stuff. That's good business. What is resting on laurels? Just silly side note, by the way. This goes back to Roman times when you were um, pronounced imperator. That's not the same as emperor. Um, you were given a high-level seat. as the first among equals. And it usually came with a lot of accolades. Or if you were a general that had come back and been given a triumph in Rome, you were presented with the laurel crown. And you see this on all the Roman statues of important people. It's just a leaf semicircle placed on their head. And when they would come to speak at the Senate, um, when someone would challenge them, they would just put their hand on the laurel leaves. They would say, I don't, have to, I don't have to prove myself at all. Look, I got this. They were resting on their laurels. Well, you still have to prove yourself. Just because you made a, a good decision 10 years ago doesn't mean the decision you're making today is good. And that's important. Um, and I learned this lesson um, from one of my advisors in school who won the Nobel Prize and was top of the world, Dr. Mortensen, and then was instrumental in the collapse of the Russian ruble and the Thai uh, bot and a series of other Asian currencies just collapsed in the late 90s. It was called the Asian contagion. So this brilliant man by the way, I learned from him after the Asian contagion when he had been given one, a Nobel Prize, and then one was responsible for the collapse of the economies of about a dozen nations. So he's both been on the pinnacle of, of achievement and the bottom of humility. And what he says is that you have to treat each decision the same way you did the first one. You can't just say, hey, this seems to work, so I'm going to do it. You have to look at the long-term implications. And when it comes to ethics, this is something Elder Baldy, my dad, taught me as I was growing up. Ethics, morals, but specifically ethics, are decisions that you make even when you do the thing, it's not that big a deal. The question you should ask is if everyone did it, what would the results be? And if you've got a gum wrapper and you throw it on the ground, it's just one gum wrapper. What's the deal with that? There's no problem with that. There's just one. You've got the whole planet and there's only one gum, gum wrapper. Why is that a bad thing? And the answer is that if everyone did that behavior, it wouldn't be just one gum wrapper. If you went to the Colosseum of Rome and said, this is amazing, I'm going to take a brick home with me, there wouldn't be a Colosseum of Rome after everyone took their bricks home. But there's plenty of bricks. There's probably millions of them, right? Well, this is ethics. And when it comes to investment decisions, if you approach your investment decision with that same concept, which is, by the way, going to discount all of the uh, venture capitalists out there because this, they don't generally tend to make decisions on if everyone did this, what would happen? If you build your portfolio around buying companies that you believe are providing a value for a profit rather than 
buying companies that you believe will be profitable because they trick their customers. Well, you can see that long-term, you're probably going to have a better track record because customers tend to figure that stuff out over time. When we have bear markets like we've been in, it starts to reveal the people that were promising vapor, that, that they had a great idea, but it's not going to show up. It also causes people that have real good ideas that might show up to lose their businesses. This is, that's the tough part of the bear markets and the recessions that tend to follow them um, is that the, the good companies that just haven't quite made the last bit that they need to make their prototype profitable run out of money. And people point at them and say, oh, that was such a waste. Why did they do that? Right, and I'm going to give you another kind of segment here on how it is that we look at success and how we look at failure. So Elon Musk, we could say without a great deal of argument possible that he's been successful. Well, what did, what did this start from? Well, he was part of the PayPal mafia. What is that? There's a group of people that founded a bank or not a bank, a private shadow bank that you could use to buy stuff online well, PayPal. Were they the only ones doing this? No, there were about two dozen companies of their size at, at the point that they're beginning to be profitable. And then eBay, which was a new business at the time, a new business model, but big because people can go on and sell their stuff and there's not any middleman and you got this auction market. It's pretty cool. Well, eBay is looking for a company to buy to make that process easier so that you can just send the money online. And they settled on PayPal. They talked to a lot of companies. They settled on PayPal. What was the reason for PayPal? Well, they just kind of in the interview process liked it a bit better. It's kind of like an employee interview, a new employee coming in and you interview 12 people and you choose one. Did you make the best decision? Well, it's hard to tell. You've got an employee and if it's the one you're sticking to, then you're committed to it. You don't say, well, I could go back and find somebody better out of that mix. Well, eBay bought PayPal. There was some degree of luck there. They had a good business model, but so did the other competitors. There weren't any big failures in the mix here. So PayPal got purchased by eBay, and they gave a lot of money for the purchase. And there are people like Peter Thiel, who, who runs a big venture capital company, several others that you would know the names, and Elon Musk were in this group. And Elon Musk says, hey, I'm not done yet. And he's done little startups throughout his life up to this point. I'm going to do some other things. I'm going to be working on going to space. And what about if I made an electric car company? Both of those enterprises at the beginning, multiple times, probably a dozen times, came within, within a weekend of failure. Why? Because there wasn't enough money on hand. He said he wasn't going to commit all of his money to any of these things because he would feel poor if he did so. He wound up putting all of his money in from PayPal so that if SpaceX had failed early on, he would have had nothing. It could have failed a lot of times early on. There weren't a lot of engineers on hand. The few that he had were high quality, but he could have just as easily done what he's done at Twitter, which isn't the opposite of good uh, as far as short-term profitability. Now, it's a different model. There's a lot of different things. When it, when it came to SpaceX and to Tesla, he's buying up engineer time and then hiring good engineers and redesigning things and listening to a lot of good advice. But during that, there were multiple, multiple times that failure could have happened with 
irregardless, just completely irregardless. Regardless, there's no such thing as irregardless. That'd be like saying it's regardable. Um, good decisions, bad decisions, luck was there that almost made them fail, but not quite. And if he'd failed at that point, we wouldn't be talking about him today. You remember that whole big thing where they were trying to go to space? Isn't that silly? We're still using the Russians to get to the space station. But it's hard to prove a negative. So luck played a big role in his, in his decision-making. It is in any business. Chance is there. Happenstance. What happened here? Just another piece of absolutely useless tri trivia, but worth the time to understand, I think. I think it's worth something, even if I call it worthless. The word happy comes from the word luck, or a word for luck. Ha hap, happenstance, happen, um, perhaps. Each of those roots, the hap, means luck. It means chance. And if you're chancy in a good way. So what? Lucky means happy. That's our word for happy, means good luck. And we can look at Elon Musk and go, yep, he's had some pretty good luck. He might be having some bad luck now, but it does not outweigh the existing luck that he's already had. When we look at the banks that have failed and the banks that are almost failing, and we say, how did they do that? When they're making the same decisions that other banks that aren't failing, if we look at the balance sheets at SVB, and the balance sheets at several other banks, but that just had a much smaller percentage of uninsured assets, a smaller percentage of venture capital, they're still profitable. They're still doing fine. Luck has a lot to do with it. And when a large group of people moves at once, that event causes a failure. And we can then come out and reconstruct it. Where was the failure point? Oh, it, they shouldn't have been in the longer term maturities or whatever. But you can find that in a good business that fails as well. What causes a good business to fail? Well, a pandemic. A lot of businesses failed in the pandemic. Did it have anything to do with their business model or their profitability in the years leading up to that or the decisions that they had made on getting loans to pay for facilities that would allow more people to come and visit them right before nobody was allowed to come and visit them? No. You know, and to some extent, insurance is there for that. The government stepped in and gave a bunch of forgivable loans that amount to insurance payments. Um, but some companies, it didn't happen in time or not enough because they acquired a big loan to build something that now nobody was using for years. And they really needed payments on that loan or they would go under. Luck is important. Good decisions if you just keep making good decisions every day, and I'll give you a, an example of that. If you get into a major car accident and you're a good driver, that happens pretty rarely, generally. You make good decisions on the road on a regular basis. You tend to stay out of traffic accidents. But sometimes they happen and they're not really your fault. An external event caused the accident. A telephone pole fell on you as you're driving. Another car hit you. Whatever it is, there are still some decisions that you make every day that can have a really good impact on that catastrophe. Like, are you wearing a seatbelt? Wait a minute. You have not been in a horrible accident your entire life. You've never been saved by the seatbelt. So why are you wearing it every time you get in the car? Because every once in a while, if you're not wearing it, things are really bad. So good decisions are making the little decisions repeatedly that are just good decisions. Bad decisions when it comes to things like this, in this case of SVB, they were staying in their lane, they weren't speeding, 
they weren't wearing their seatbelt and somebody else hit them. The Federal Reserve hit them. The interest rates were going up, but they weren't wearing their seatbelts. That was a bad decision. They could have made it if the Federal Reserve hadn't been raising interest rates or if the uh, depositors hadn't all run on the bank at the same time, they could have made it. But they weren't wearing their seatbelts. And we can say, well, that's a problem. They should be doing that. Or, or we could look up and say, wait, they, didn't, they hadn't changed their oil. Well, did that lead to the catastrophe? No. Not wearing their seatbelts also did not lead to the catastrophe. But it didn't prevent injury. That's what we're looking at. When you have all the safety mechanisms in a car... It causes the car to be a lot more expensive than a car without it. If you have surround airbags that every possible impact place in the passenger compartment has airbags, that costs more than not having them. I know that's a weird concept. When people are measuring, you know, the Chinese economy is easily as large as the United States if you look at purchase price parity and PPP per capita and all that good stuff. Except their cars don't have airbags. They don't have catalytic converters that prevent huge amounts of pollution to go up into their air. They don't have crumple zones in the same way. A lot of times the glass on their windshield is not shatterproof. Little things that in bad situations become really big things. Their houses do not have the same kind of insulation or wiring or standards of quality that we demand. Well, those things cost more money. It's just a truth. And in a banking business where you say, why should we spend more money on seatbelts? We haven't ever been in a car accident. It looks in a boardroom conversation, if you're just looking at the metrics and the money, like a perfectly reasonable conversation. And people go, yeah, that looks good to me. We're and they may not even bring it up. They may not even think about the fact that they're not spending money on something to hedge their investments, on insurance on their investments, on any number of things. Not wearing your seatbelt doesn't cause the accident, and that's important. So when we look at the big banks, they're all wearing their seatbelts. That's a requirement. The Federal Reserve is sticking their heads in the car with them and saying, hey, well, tighten that up a little bit there. Where's your airbags? Got everything? Little banks, Federal Reserve says, here's some practices you should follow. In the event of wrongdoing, we may come and check you out. But Congress says we don't need to mess with you because you're smaller than $250 billion in assets. Um, that's a little dangerous. Um, and I brought up this next layer. You know, I'm comparing banking regulation and whether or not they need to be holding extra insurance on deposits or hedging their uh, portfolio or checking to make sure that their depositors aren't in one group industry that if that industry is affected or they all move at once, it destroys the bank. I'm referring to that kind of like a seatbelt in a car, that making decisions to be profitable on a day-to-day -day basis are how fast you're driving and what lane you're in. The insurance and the hedging is the seatbelt. And they're staying in their lane, they're making profitable decisions, they're being safe drivers, but they're not wearing their seatbelt. So next layer, they were required to wear their seatbelts prior to 2018. Not this bank, because this bank wasn't big enough even then or didn't exist. Uh, it started in the same time period as this law was passed to make it so they didn't have to have major stress tests. So let's go to 
actual cars. We have a law in Texas, a lot of the states have laws that say if you're in the driver's seat or in the front seat, you've got to wear a seatbelt. And if your kid's below a certain age or size, they've got to be in a car seat, a special manufactured little thing for babies to make sure that they are in the best setup in the event of a car accident. Well, isn't that a removal of your freedom? I mean, the banks are obviously not as free as they could be with this external regulation regulation requiring them to do things with their own business. And, and when it comes to cars, if you're wearing a helmet on a motorcycle, there was a law for a long time in Texas that required it. Well, why? Well, because it saves lives. A lot of people's death on motorcycles comes because of head injuries. Um, so that law was repealed. Well, why? Why was the law repealed to wear a helmet on a motorcycle? Well, because a group of people said that's not why they're riding motorcycles. They're not riding motorcycles to be safe. They're riding motorcycles to feel free. So they don't want to wear a helmet or they want to have the right to not wear a helmet. And that's totally up to them now. Is that a good decision at the law framework or not? Well, in my opinion, because I'm not in politics, it's kind of irrelevant whether it's a pro or a con, whether it's freedom or extra protection. It's the law. If the law says you can do it and somebody's doing it, that's fine. And, and I tend to think in a logical sense, well, who's it going to hurt? Well, it's probably just going to hurt the person that's not wearing the helmet. That's their decision. Well, what if you put uh, a, an adult and three kids under the age of six on the same motorcycle and none of them are wearing helmets and they're driving down the highway? We kind of trying to draw the line there. That's dangerous. You're going to hurt the kids. They're not old enough to make that decision. So the police are going to react to that. We have friends that have come to the United States from Thailand or from other countries where it's standard practice to put five people on a moped. And some of them are babies to get to work or to go where you're going because it's the only transportation. This was true of Italy and Japan right after the Second World War. It was common to see large groups of people sitting on a scooter or a moped. Um, that's, it's just, I mean, there was advertisements for it in, in Italy all the way up through the 60s of a whole family sitting on the little scooter going about their business. That would, we look at that today and go, whoa, that's, you're going to, what, what are you gonna, what are you doing? So drawing the line on where is it good to regulate and where is freedom more important? This is the constant tug of war that we have in our culture. At what point does the government have the right to tell you to be safe with yourself? Um, they say you can't smoke cigarettes below the age of 18. Well, okay, you can't really vote till 18. You don't have all your rights till you're 18. That seems to make sense. You're not making good decisions. But what's the age 18 come from? Well, it's just kind of a random number from some point a couple of hundred years ago. Seems, seems like a good age. There's no logic behind it. There doesn't need to be. We know that the brain doesn't stop developing till into the 20s. So it's not like the, the child brain is gone at that point. But this is an age that have been adults throughout human history. These are tricky questions. When do you need to regulate a bank? It does stifle growth. If you take the middle-sized banks or all the banks and say you have to follow all these rules, they're not going to have the same amount of loans available to make loans to these new startups if they all have to follow very strict rules. So where is that line? It's kind of like when the government raises taxes or lowers taxes 
when's, where is the perfect point to have the taxes to get the best revenue? Well, it's kind of irrelevant because there's no way you can know that till after the fact. That line, that, that curve that shows revenue to the government, by the way, it's called the Laffer curve. When you look at 0% taxes mean zero revenue to the government, that seems reasonable. But also 100% taxes means zero revenue to the government. Well, wait a minute. If the government's taking all of your earnings, why are they getting zero? Because you wouldn't be earning. <laughs> You'd say, forget this. I'm not going to do all my work to give it to you. So people stop working. So somewhere in the middle, between zero and 100, is the sweet spot, where if you raise it above that, people stop working. And if you lower it, you get less revenue. That spot is called the Laffer point. It was coined by Arthur Laffer, who was the uh, head of the Council of Economic Advisors to Ronald Reagan. Um, he's gotten very political since then. This is a beautiful concept, though, just taking politics completely out of it and saying this is a concept of there is a perfect spot for taxes to be. The problem is it moves with the economy. In a recession, having your taxes at the same spot that got you the sweet spot in a boom time is going to cause the recession to last longer. So lowering taxes in a recession and raising them when you're in a boom time makes sense. Congress isn't nimble enough to do that. And you don't really know where you are in an economic cycle until after the fact. You don't know you're in a recession until somebody comes back and says, we've been in a recession for two quarters. So how does, how does that work? Well, you have to find some kind of middle ground that tends to work. And when it comes to regulating banks or whether or not you should wear a seatbelt in the car, that regulation is based on the culture of the people, on whether they're comfortable with the government saying, yes, go ahead and do that. In Denmark, they're absolutely comfortable with the government telling everybody to wear seatbelts. And if you're on a, on a motorcycle, you have to wear a helmet. In the state of Texas, we did that for a while. And the motorcycle riders were upset enough that they got the legislature to say, you don't have to wear helmets. Well, that's our culture. And if it works for us now, there's no saying what's going to happen in two generations when the motorcycles are on the road with only computers driving the other vehicles. You might have a special lane or something. How do we deal with that problem when it comes to bank regulation and where did we fail? Is it a failure to release restrictions to allow growth if those restrictions prevented a few of the banks from failing later? That is a hard decision. And it's really not a question of Republican or Democrat politics anymore. This is just management. This is why I really don't like the political divide that we see in Washington and across the country. The reality is that the majority, not the majority, the plurality of people don't consider themselves Republican or Democrat. The people that don't consider themselves one or the other outnumber each of the others. They outnumber the Democrats and they outnumber the Republicans. There's a plurality of people that do not identify 100% with any given party. And when people talk about the silent majority believe Trump or the silent majority believe Biden, the reality is that the silent majority is kind of going along with stuff and going, well, I think we're going to switch to the other side next time around. Or I think this is working out, I'll stick with this. And when we come to bank regulations, when it comes to automobile regulations. It's all the same behavioral points. In a catastrophe, it's a lot easier to regulate automobiles. If we have a whole bunch of deaths for people not having their seatbelts on, it's really easy to say, 
get those seatbelts on. If we have a bunch of bank failures, it's really easy to say, hey, we've got to have some strict rules for you guys. But when things are going well, and this goes back to, you know, Dodd and Frank, Barney Frank and, and both senators these, that, that were totally anti-extra regulation for banks before the crisis have their names on the regulation of banks after the crisis. And then again later, Frank and, and Dodd both have their, their endorsement to releasing some of those regulations that are the same regulations when they were released that could have prevented SVB from failing. Was it the law and Congress? that caused the failure? No, it was the bank that caused the failure. They made decisions that were not the best ones. They have never been in a car accident. They're not going to wear a seatbelt. So what can you do? Wear your seatbelt. Have reserves on hand. Make sure it's below the FDIC limit. Make your day-to-day decisions as if each of the small ones were as important as the big one, because cumulatively, the small decisions that you make whether or not to eat at a restaurant or cook your own food on a Monday. The accumulation of those small decisions are much larger than the big decisions that you have to make. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, We are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also have not ever paid for it So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve 
That's generally and portfolio for, management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.